321-234-5431. Kevin Kramer for Jason Spies. Thank you, Senator Kramer, for joining the Crude Life today. All right, I know you got a busy day in Washington, so I appreciate you stepping out and, and uh, relaying some information to the Crude Life audience. There was a, well, I'll, I'll quote a news story that we had this week from the Associated Press. They said the word sweet of executive orders. That's how many executive orders were filed already. They used the word sweet. So um, let's let's talk a little bit about some of these executive orders, and let's talk about the pipeline ones first. If you need to address the Keystone and the DAPL individually, that's fine, but let's start with the uh, pipeline executive orders. So interesting point, and, and I think it's a great way to, to set it up, uh, addressing Keystone and DAPL separately, because they really are separate. They're not just separate pipelines. Of course, one's international, one is interstate. One, the Keystone, of course, being the international pipeline, gives a great deal of authority to the president because it's international, because it crosses the border. That means it requires a presidential permit. That is under the purview of the president with the uh, direct um, involvement of the State Department. The other thing about the Keystone Pipeline, I think to differentiate a little bit, Jason, is that the Keystone Pipeline has, besides that obvious federal nexus, it has a lot of other federal nexus along the route um, where it's... it's, uh, already been litigated in various places or is in litigation, particularly in Montana with, with a federal judge that's a very activist judge uh, over there. Um, so, so obviously Keystone has more of a federal nexus, therefore more of an opportunity for presidential mischief. The Dakota Access Pipeline, of course, originates and ends in the continental United States. Uh, it has very little federal uh, nexus. In fact, the only real federal nexus is in North Dakota, that 0.2 miles or you know 1,000 feet or whatever it is underneath the Missouri River south of the Bismarck, that is really the only federal nexus. And, and it carries 100% U.S. crude, whereas the Keystone carries basically 100% or would carry basically 100% Canadian crude. So, so those distinctions are important when you consider what the president's doing. So it was easy for the president to issue an executive order um, repealing a presidential permit. Um, and that's a pretty big problem, obviously, for the Keystone, because without that, it cannot cross the, uh, the border, the international border. Um, you know, it's also, again, being litigated in several places. The Keystone carries no, no U.S. crude. So it's of less, it's of less um, direct importance to, to Americans. However, the jobs that it creates, both in the building and the maintenance, of course, are... American jobs. So that's not unimportant. The oil that it sends is not from Venezuela, but rather from our good friends in Canada. That's important. It is a similar type in that it's heavy sour. Um, the, the, the refineries in the, in the Gulf Coast that would take um, the oil sands, oil from, from Alberta that will ride on the Keystone Pipeline are set up to handle and refine heavy sour crude. All important distinctions. The Dakota Access Pipeline, which takes, you know, basically 100% Bakken sweet, light sweet crude to markets, but both down to the, you know, the industrial Midwest and then beyond um, from there, uh, that's 100% North Dakota light sweet. So, um, you know, the, the, the president has to this point not done an executive order on the Dakota Access Pipeline. I think a big part of it is because there's no order for him to, you know, to issue. 
The other thing is, of course, the DAPL pipeline is um, built. It has been uh, functioning very effectively and very safely for three years. But there is this pending court case that continues to be ping pong back and forth between the, uh, you know, the, the district court in the District of Columbia and the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. And it centers around, again, that, that you know, 1,000 feet or so underneath uh, the Missouri River south of Bismarck. And, um, and, the, and the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, and we can get into those nuances in a minute, but, but with regard to the executive orders, that, that's, that's why you haven't seen a presidential executive order on DAPL. The, the other thing, though, I think it's important to remember is that the, pre the president can still, I suppose, state an opinion. He could probably try to, to give guidance or bully um, the Corps of Engineers, who has the administrative you know, regulatory authority over that permit underneath the Missouri River. Um, but it would be difficult for him to do anything with any integrity there because, of course, the, the permit has already been issued. The easement, now, while it's been vacated, um, they have a, a tenant in, in Dakota Access and Energy Transfer Partners. Again, a safe demonstration of, of solid engineering. Um, they'll have, they're going to have to work this lawsuit out between the tribe, the Standing Rock tribe and uh, the Corps of Engineers. But in the meantime, the challenge there is to, to keep oil running through the pipeline, even though the easement has been has been vacated because the Army Corps fell short of the, the NEPA Act when it allowed Dakota access to cross this, this uh, reservoir or the Missouri River. So I, I got three kind of points, and you can uh, address them, or you can you know just kind of ignore them if you'd like. But um, the first one is that I... I believe that the pipelines are all connected because you just you want to keep the flow of energy going, and a lot. And what I mean by that is the economy. These companies are are you know connected across Shale Play USA, so that uh, companies in Canada are doing business in America, and companies in America are doing business in Canada, and vice versa. So you just you need to keep that synergy going, and then there's the whole national security aspect of it too. But the second part is the critical infrastructure. Um, I thought pipelines were considered critical infrastructure. So to see a president go after critical infrastructure, I guess I'd like to see the, the, the narrative get changed a little bit more towards the abstract to say, why is the president going after critical infrastructure? And third, sorry to load this gun up even more here, So, but uh, thirdly, how much of this is Army Corps of Engineers? Because my background, you know, Senator Kramer, is, is with, you know, news and that sort of thing. So the, the Army Corps of Engineers, to me, was always the flood fight people, you know, that when we're in the middle of a flood fight, we got to call the Army Corps of Engineers. And then I started seeing that they were a little bit more political than I thought. So I, I guess I don't know, is the Army Corps of Engineers with the Right to Water Act and all this stuff, how much of that is being played into this? So, important point, because what you've just articulated is where um, the president, the, the commander-in-chief, just remember that, commander-in-chief of our military, where he could try to inflict some or impose some influence on the Corps of Engineers. On the other hand, the Corps of Engineers is very much a non non-political entity. In fact, in many respects, they're so non-political, they don't really know how to be political. And that can sometimes become a problem because, they're first of all, they're non-political. Second of all, they're military. They're the Army. And third of all, they're engineers. 
So th these are not people who nuance a lot of things. You know what I'm saying? They're, they're very sort of square, in the box, straight down the middle sort of people, and it's straight down the middle organization. The, the Corps of Engineers' jurisdiction here is because it crosses underneath the reservoir and the river. That, that is their jurisdiction. So th they're not pipeline people. They're, they're uh, interstate waters people. So while they fight floods, they also build dams, obviously. They also build dikes. Um, uh, you know, they, they're also, you know, they're basically the engineering firm for construction for the Army, but this is, this is a very specialized area for them. So their jurisdiction in, in regard to DAPL is right, because they're the, they're the landlord. They are, but, but they're the landlord that has to answer to several other federal agencies in this scenario. Um, you know, to some degree, the Department of the Interior, because, of course, you're dealing with, with tr the tribe and you're dealing with um, uh, lands that are not on the reservation, but they're very near the reservation, but they are on um, previous treaty lands. And so, so it, gets, it gets a little more complex than that, but the Corps of Engineers is the landlord, and um, really the taxpayers are the landlord, but the Corps of Engineers, you know, they're, the, they're the superintendent, shall we say. So that's why they have jurisdiction. I don't worry a lot about the Corps of Engineers if if they're um, if they're not uh, encumbered with political pressures. So they they're they're, they're not appointed like this outfit out in Colorado that um, um, the BLM where they started, you know, calling yep, oil right. and gas companies snake oil yep. and all that other stuff. They're, so really important distinction. You, BLM, in fact, is the perfect distinction. You're right. They're not appointed like that. Now there is. Don't get me wrong. There is a secretary, an undersecretary sure. in the army who has a political position in the corps. But the corps of engineers is, you know, the, the head of the, um, this part of it, of course, is a three-star general, General Spellman. Um, he knows oh, these sure. issues very well. He knows our areas. So, so that and they're in the chain of command is a much more linear thing. Right? It, it, it goes up to a four-star and, the, you know, the Secretary of Defense ultimately and then ultimately the, the Commander-in-Chief. That's why I referenced the President as a Commander-in-Chief. So they're not political, but they do have a hierarchy that is very traditional. And, um, but, but I don't worry about the Corps of Engineers if politics isn't imposed on them. I, I think they've done a good job of, remember, it's their permit that's at play here. It's, Energy Transfer Partners and Dakota Access are not the defendants in this lawsuit between you know, the, the um, tribe or, or justice and the Corps of Engineers. Um, it, it's the Corps of Engineers that's defendant. Energy Transfer Partners happens to be an important stakeholder, obviously yeah. an intervener in the case. Um, but, I, you know, I, I think from everything I've read, and I've read it all, and I've talked to a lot of people, uh, including General Spellman, and um, I think, the, let's just say I'm 100% confident that the Corps of Engineers and DAPL win this case at the end. What I'm not 100% certain of is how will it play out. And the issue today is, you know, the, um, you know I mentioned that the U.S. Court of uh, uh, Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit agreed with the lower court that the Army had fallen short of their NEPA um, responsibilities when they allowed uh, DAPL to cross a federal reservoir in North Dakota, and that violation warranted scrapping the easement. So the easement's been vacated, as they say in, in uh, you know, lawyer speak. But the D.C. Circuit reiterated its previous ruling that the lower court went a step too far when they ordered the pipeline to be shut down. I just, I believe that the Court of Appeals was right to, to reaffirm that the original ruling uh, with the Apple to, or for the Apple shutdown was wrong. The, the, the 
DAPL was cre created in full compliance, right, with the direction provided by, remember, to your previous point, the, the Obama administration's Corps of Engineers. And it's helped usher in this era of American energy dominance that's now under attack. But the, but the Corps should be allowed to proceed as they are without political interference from the Biden administration. And it's, it's really, really important that that takes place because what I believe is that the Corps of Engineers will make the argument, remembering again, they're the administrator. They're the, they're the superintendent. They'll, they sh they should, they'll make the final conclusion that they don't need to empty that pipeline. They don't need to shut down the pipeline. It's operated for three years, proving the, the, the excellent engineering of it. Um, it. It's got, you know, the latest, greatest uh, protections. Um, and I, we could argue all that forever, but I believe that they'll keep it going. They'll have to explain that to the judge, um, the, the district judge, the, the, the D.C. Circuit, you know, you know, said they need to do that, but it is basically up to the Corps of Engineers. So absence political interference, I believe that they'll still be able to use the pipeline while they litigate this or while they go through the environmental impacts uh, study process, which will probably take about another year. Jason, you know, these things never go as fast as they're supposed to or should, but uh, they want to get it right this time. And so I'm, I'm confident that, that we'll keep the pipeline running, that, that the, remember the, the pipelines also, they're also doing an EIS in concert with the EIS that the judge ordered retroactively. This new EIS is going to also study uh, increasing the pressure and the flow through to over a million barrels per day. So it's a really big, important piece of, to quote you, critical infrastructure for the Bakken, but for more importantly for national and energy security. Is there anything behind that critical infrastructure? I mean, you know, it seems like it, it would be a big deal, but the way people are attacking pipelines, yeah. it just seems like it's a disposable thing now. Well, to their detriment, they think that. Uh, because if they, if they have too much success in shutting down pipelines or coal plants or transmission lines, they're going to find out how cold it gets in the winter and how hard, how hard it is to drive a car or fly an airplane without fuel. And, um, you know, and, and so that, that's unfortunately where we're heading. You asked another important question, or maybe it was more of a statement in your question, about speaking of critical infrastructure and the ramifications of any one pipeline's demise to the greater network. Because I think one, one thing that every American child should learn in school, they should have to look at a pipeline map or even just an energy infrastructure map with multiple overlays. Um, in fact, you, you know, if you designed that for schools, you, you, you might make a million dollars. I don't know. But people would be stunned at how many miles, how many thousands of miles of pipeline there are under the ground just in North Dakota. And you're right. It's a web. I think you referenced it as a web. And so it, it's similar to like electrical infrastructure, um, communications infrastructure. Pipeline infrastructure is similar. The difference is you just don't see it. But it's... Um, it crosses boundaries, not just state boundaries, but um, international boundaries between the United States, Canada, United States, Mexico. Um, oil goes in and out. If you ever look, for example, if you look at a, just a straight linear um, chart of exports and imports between the United States and Canada, you're going to see that oil is by far the largest export and by far the largest import. Well, that's because the same barrel of oil crosses a you know, the border multiple times sometimes in very circuitous routes to go to where the market demand is. And so you're, you're right to point out that you cut off one and you do, you do 
jeopardize the integrity of the greater network. Now, I will say this about the Keystone. The Keystone is a very specific uh, oil from a very specific place uh, en route to a very specific place. It isn't really part of the United States web of infrastructure, whereas, say, Dapple, it's a, it's a linear line to the, the, I call it the industrial Midwest, to Patoka, Illinois, or, you know, or whether, whether, whether a line goes to, say, Patoka, Illinois, we hear a lot about that. The other area being, of course, Oklahoma, Oklahoma City. From there, you know, it gets, it gets redirected to multiple places. So it's not, it's, it's a dynamic network. It's not a linear network. And uh, so Dapple's more part of that infrastructure probably than the Keystone would be. Uh, the next couple questions I'm going to lump together because I'm taking a look at the clock. I know you got a busy day ahead of you. Is I wanted to ask you about uh, your statement on the uh, Paris Agreement. And I love the um, flipping the script and, and taking control of the narrative. I do. I saw that you got beat up a little bit, and I went, are you kidding me? This is what we should be doing. We should be taking the narrative back again. So talk about that, your statement when it came to the, the Paris Agreement. And then um, from there, I, I got to ask you, uh, what the heck is a climate envoy? What is that? So I shouldn't laugh. I'm so sorry. Uh, but when I hear the word, like, <laughs> climate envoy, climate, climate envoy, and I, I see John Kerry's picture, and I think, oh my gosh, we're we're in trouble. But it um, is ridiculous. It is. It, it's it absolutely is ridiculous. ridiculous. But remember, if he's the climate envoy, what's even more ridiculous or is, is scary than that is that um, Gina McCarthy is the uh, the, the czar, She's huh. the climate czar. And what all this means is that that the White House is taking control of everything. Now, just yesterday, I had the opportunity in the Environment and Public Works Committee to cross-examine Michael Regan, the nominee to be the EPA administrator. And I'll probably support Michael. Michael's a, a state regulator, a former state regulator in, in North Carolina. I do think that he has a, a sensibility about him and a sensitivity to states and stakeholders, and he's, he's a bit of a consensus builder. The problem is he's not going to have a damn thing to say about anything at the EPA because he's, he's going to forever be under the thumb of Gina McCarthy, who's you know hanging out right there in the White House and dictating climate policy to every agency, everything from the you know Department of Defense to the Department of State to the, the, the you know, transportation. It, it's just it's, it's lunacy. But anyway, that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with, uh, with religious zealots here. And uh, John Kerry, of course, has taken a lot of heat, and rightfully so, for the fact that he's got, he and his family have one of the largest um, greenhouse gas uh, emission uh, footprints of any, any family in the world. Um, but he says he, it's important that he can fly places, you know, that, that he can't sail around the world. He has to fly. But the question is, really, do you have to fly in your private jet all the time, or could you fly like the rest of the normal people in the world on a commercial airline, which is 20 times cleaner than his private jet. But anyway, that's the hypocrisy they're going to have to deal with. Um, but, they, but they won't be called to account for it very much by our media. I actually think we're well beyond hypocrisy to where it's just rank prejudice. The, the actual Webster's Dictionary uh, definition of the word rank prejudice, where they're just flat out discriminating against an industry. Flat out. Well, that's that's right. That's what rank is all about, right? Um, you, you know, that that's what they call it, rankism. It's 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 discriminatory. It's it's abusive. Um, it, you know, it, it exploits behavior towards people because of their rank in a particular hierarchy. And in this case, the rank, you know, there's the rank in sense of uh, John Kerry's 
ranks above all the rest of us peasants, and therefore do as I say, not as I do. Don't you don't worry about me. Don't look here. Um, the other rank is just what kind of a person you are. If you're a Republican, um, you, you're to be censored and to be and to be questioned and to be ridiculed. Um, on the other hand, if you're a Democrat or a liberal, uh, you're just to be believed no matter what. And if you don't, they, you know, they become victims. With regard to Paris, um, which I'm glad you asked about, and I, I, Jason, one thing, one thing I do love about your interviews is because you've thought this stuff through. You're, you're, you're both curious, but you also have a perspective. And Flip the Script is a pretty good description, I think, of what you're reading from me in my opinion piece that I wrote for the... the uh, I wrote it for Fox News, actually. That's who ran it first, and then since then it's gotten out a long ways. I was, it was interesting when... when you know, when um, President Trump became president, I actually sort of joined forces a little bit with, at the time, Jared Kushner and, and Ivanka, and then um, um, the Secretary of State at the time, uh, saying, you know, Mr. President, maybe we ought to think about this Paris Climate Accord. Now, clearly, we couldn't go in under the same, or we shouldn't stay in under the same conditions that Barack Obama created. I mean, okay, China, you're the biggest polluter in the world. We want you to continue to pollute and grow your pollution footprint for the next, you know, 15 years, um, and we'll continue to reduce ours. That, that, that just makes zero sense. The thing we'll always remember about the Paris Climate Accord is that the emission standards that are set in Paris are are are, are voluntary. So even so, whatever you agree to, it is only voluntary. It's just it's really an accord. It's not so much um, it's not so much a, a court, if you will. But by recusing ourselves from it, and this is what I said to the president at the time, recusing ourselves from it, we diminish our opportunity to advance our interests on the global stage. And the reason I believe that's important is because so much of the innovation, regardless of what you think about climate, much of the innovation that will that will diminish and, and, and you know minimize a carbon footprint will be invented and is being invented in places like the EERC in Grand Forks, North Dakota and other places in the country. Things like carbon capture, utilization, and storage. Things like, um, you, know, um, you know, safer ways, cleaner ways to, to clean, uh, to, scrub, to scrub coal emissions at the stacks. Um, you know, coal refinements. Um, we have all kinds of good things. We have better ways to use natural gas. Um, these innovations can come about as long as you don't kill the innovators. And those innovations are marketable on the global stage. So I always believed that, and, and by the way, that doesn't even address nuclear. I believe the United States has acquiesced its nuclear excellence for the last 20 years to, to our own detriment if we're not careful. We need to restore that, um, that intellectual uh, capacity, make sure that we continue to grow it, because I believe you know, nuclear power is the, by far the cleanest. It is zero, literally zero emissions, but it's 100% reliable. And by the way, it's proven to be so far 100% safe right here in the United States of America. So my thing about Paris is let's be, let, let's be part of the solution. Let's be the leader at the head of the table. And not only will we help drive some of these uh, policies in other countries, but we'll be able to sell them the technologies, the products, Take as an example, and, and 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 like I said, first of all, we have to change, we have to change some of the, you know, the, the emission standards. But because we're not at the table, you might recall that late last year, there's a company in Paris, or in, in I'm yeah, in, in France, that used to be owned by the French government, and this company is a a, a company that buys a lot of um, 
a lot of natural gas. Well, this natural gas, they had a deal made with the United States to buy a whole bunch of U.S. natural gas. And why is that important? Well, that's important for one reason, because other natural gas is produced in a cleaner way than anybody else's. It's important in another way because the competitor is Vladimir Putin and Russia. So cleaner, lower emissions footprint in the U.S. and an ally in the U.S. The company's called E-N-G-I-E. And they backed out of this deal with the, United, with the U.S. liquefied natural gas company while maintaining Russian natural gas imports, even though Russian natural gas shipped to Europe by pipeline has 41% higher emissions than American LNG. Well, our innovators can't win in that sort of a global market if we're not sitting at the table, especially. So I think that's just one example of a lost opportunity to actually sell the commodity. That doesn't even address things like carbon capture, utilization, storage, and other technologies. And you might recall in the last Congress, I led the effort to reauthorize the Export-Import Bank, which includes prioritizing clean energy projects. That was a specific piece in that bill, to, in that legislation to get it authorized, reauthorized. It's the longest reauthorization in the history of the bank. Well, this is where, you know, using the Export-Import Bank, you know, Paris table, if you will, allows um, to expand and invest in a nuclear fleet, uh, make sure we're, we're sharing uh, the safest, most advanced nuclear power with, with the world that's very eager to receive it. And same with things like you know, natural gas and carbon capture utilization storage technology, those kinds of things. So for me, I'm just saying, let's be at the global table. Let's lead from the head of the table and let's maximize both the policy outcomes uh, globally and our opportunities to, to market our products globally. All right, last question for you here. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, because you grew up on the eastern side of North Dakota, where it's very sure. ag-heavy, and then, yeah. of course, you're in Bismarck, so you got to, you got to be a part of all that uh, early days of the oil Bakken and everything. Uh, were you public service commissioner at that time when that kind of took off, or were you still tourism? Nope, I was, I was a public service commission commissioner throughout the whole you know, Bach and boom days was very, I carried the pipeline portfolio. In fact, we cited the original Keystone pipeline when I was on the commission carried that portfolio. Okay. And, and the original Keystone went right down the heart of eastern North Dakota, as you know, nine counties, 600 landowners, nowhere near oil country. Um, and yet, you know that not one mile of, of that roughly 250 miles of pipeline was condemned. Not one mile. Right. That, but it was really, it's a very different culture then. You were so that you were public service commissioner when the uh, smoking ban came into effect. Then, when when oh, they yeah. kind of implemented that, you know, it, it took about well, five I was five sort years. Of straddling but, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was sort of straddling that, but yeah. Yep. Okay. And then, um, and the only, and, and I bring that up for a reason because I, I do think a lot of the templates of 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 public relations and public shaming that came out of that um, smoking ban is being used right now against oil and gas. So I'm going to say that first. Second is what I believe that's going on right now in the bigger picture, existentially, is that uh, the oil and gas workers being replaced by the light switch in the same way the farmer got replaced by the grocery store. Does that make sense? No, it's a very interesting illustration, and, and it does make sense. And here's what I would say to that. So, I'll, I'll even back up a bit. When, when my early days in the in Congress in the House, you know, I've always done a lot of talk radio, a lot of podcasts. I, I like doing that. 
But I used to do more national radio in the early days. I just don't have time, nor do I like to stay up that late. But one of the shows I liked doing was Jim Bohannon's show, and he's on a number of stations in North Dakota. I think he's on about 300 nationwide, maybe 400. And it was, a, but it was a call-in show, so I actually took calls from people, and I take calls from people from all over the country of all stripes, Jason. I mean, it really was sort of a rich experience. I just I can't stay up that late. But anyway, um, but I'll never forget some of the calls I'd get from places like New York or Philadelphia, where you swear. People think that meat is created in a deli and that electricity is like generated you know, by some magic in, in, in the light switch. You're exactly right. And, and so, so there's, unless people run out of gas. Now, I do think this. I do think people relate more certainly to liquid fuels than they do to other things because you actually do see it. You do go fill your own pump. You, you do smell the gas. You know what it happens if you spill it. Um, you, you know you can't start your lawnmower or your snowblower. But the more and more people rely on, on, on um, public transportation, the more and more they rely on Uber or, or something like that, and, and the less they actually you know, mow their own lawns or the more they live in you know, inner cities um, or in, in sky rises, the less understanding people have of the important supply chain. And then beyond that, of course, just the lack of, fundamental understanding of a dynamic economy. And thinking, think about this, and I should, have, I should have done a bunch of this research before I got on with you, but huh. the, the, the role, of, the role of, of increased energy costs on fixed incomes is very real. Just, just give a sense of this. Just the loss of the Keystone XL pipeline. You could see gas going up, say, $2 um, pretty easily. You could see gas at $5 a gallon fairly easily. In fact, remember, it was at 4 one time, not that terribly long ago, before the, before the revolution, if you will, the, the fracking revolution. So let's say it goes back up to 4 or $5 a gallon. The impact of that on a family of four making $50,000 a year, maybe spending, you know, $25 a week on gas, is this, they're going to spend $50 a week on gas. They're going to spend $60, $70 a week on gas. Then they have to decide whether they buy gasoline or shoes for, for Timmy or insulin for Amy or whatever the case might be. They're so many examples of the dynamism and the role that energy plays in, in this marketplace. The median U.S. energy burden is 3.5% for a household's income uh, among the median, the median income. So low-income households experience a median uh, energy burden of 7.2%. So, so just imagine that right there, if, if you're median, middle class, middle America, you're spending 3.5% on, on energy. If you're lower income, you're spending 7.2%. That's because the cost of the energy doesn't go down with your income. It, it just, the, the percentage of it stays up. That's a fixed income with a, with a growing cost and growing price. I just think we aren't teaching basic economics nearly enough, evidently. People don't have an understanding of it. If they don't see it, they don't understand it. To your point about farmers and food, um, yeah, I think that's a real problem. And that's why I think for those of us in positions of influence, whether it's in politics or, or entertainment or, you know, the media or, or even education, we need to constantly be talking about these things. That's why Joe Biden's suite of, of um, executive orders demands a response. It demands a response. And, and, and it doesn't have to be a harsh bare-knuckle political response, Jason. It needs to be an intellectual, academic response in some cases, helping people understand what the absence of North American energy means to 
the, the value chain, both downstream and upstream. Okay, so I just talked about how doubling, you know, the, the, how, how doubling the cost of gasoline will double, <laughs> you know, the, double uh, the cost at the pump and all those things. That means to a family's direct income and, and, and economics, it's a problem. But remember this, whatever we grow, I mean, getting back to food, the farmer puts diesel to plant. He puts diesel in to, to cultivate. He puts diesel in to harvest. He puts diesel in or gasoline in to haul it to market. Um, it takes energy to turn you know wheat into flour. It takes energy to turn flour into bread, and and that means everything in that value chain is going up. Think of what it does to the manufacturing sector. Think all of these things are bad for lots of people, and this is why energy is a Critical component. Energy in and of itself is a big part of our gross domestic product, but it's a huge part of the value chain, the supply chain, and so we we need to be be very careful. So you you asked a simple question. I gave a complicated answer, but I think um, it, a lot of it's just an education process. Here, exactly. well, there... But here's the other thing we could do. By the way, one of the things I thought about, and and this would be unethical, so I'd never actually advocate for it. But I do think you could have a virtual um, carbon-free day. And let's just pick a day when it's, you know, 20 degrees below zero in half of the country. Or a day when it's a hundred and, you know, five above in half of the country. And you, you let's just have a carbon-free day and see how that goes. I'll see how a, that would play out. I'll, I'll, I'll go one further because there's actually conversations being had. In fact, you can go back two months on the podcast here, and I, I'm trying to remember the specific guest where we actually had this conversation on the air, so it is documented. But um, there are some rumblings about a three-day strike with all the oil and gas workers. And I'll tell you what, the operators aren't going to like it, and the public ain't going to like it. But the idea is not during the wintertime. We don't want anybody to, to you know, not have, not have heat. Maybe during the summer and give everybody months advance. And the idea is not to strike. It's to get a public conversation going on the view, on whatever the Oprah of the day is, so that the people who are protesting against it for several months have a discussion of what would life be like if just oil and gas workers decided to take a three-day vacation. That's it. Just a, Not even a strike. A three-day vacation. Just to, just to say, you know what, guys? You know what? We're tired of getting beat up. We're just going to go down to the lake and enjoy a couple days off and see how you guys like it and that sort of thing. Because we don't want to get anybody in trouble because where we're at right now is just the idea of it could probably send the Secret Service in to arrest people because th that type of thing would shut the economy yeah. down. So I don't know what yeah. your thought is on that, Senator Kramer. But that <laughs> Well, I, I'm glad you, you came up with it. Um, <laughs> but your point is very important. But I'm not sure, Jason, here's what I worry about. I worry that we live in such an... We live in such a soft culture right now. Everybody's offended at the drop of a hat. Everybody's, you know, a victim if, if somebody says anything that, that, that they find offensive. Um, we've raised a generation that completely um, is entitled to everything. And, and, and I worry that we're so far gone that unless they experience it for real, they'll never understand it. The tragedy is they are going to experience it for real. We've had polar vortexes and we've had super hot summer days when it did stress the, 
the grid, for example, in the electricity markets. Well, that's, that's an infrastructure problem, a serious infrastructure problem. And for every coal plant that goes down, every nuclear plant that goes down that can provide 24 hours, seven day a week electricity at the flip of the switch, for every one of those that goes down, that grid becomes less and less reliable until such time as there's adequate you know, battery technology and battery storage. And the people that scoff at that, you just wait till the day that there's, there's just one too few coal plants to provide the backstop for wind and solar when the sun's not shining and the wind's not blowing. Uh, we, we've got, we've got, that scenario's not that far from us. You, if you shut down oil and gas development, say for three days in the United States, the price would soar, obviously. There'd be a supply shortage suddenly while the demand remains high. Uh, um, well, you know, I'll, I'll, you, I'll you even go one take step take further, though, problem. is that the conversations that are had, it always ends at the same place, which is the people would never do it. And I think the climate activists know that the oil and gas workers would never do that because they actually care about their communities so much and they understand the ramifications. Right. And, right. and, and they understand the importance of a job. Exactly, in today's day and age especially. So, but uh, anyway, I just thought I'd, I'd bring that climate, up to you. Climate, terrorists, climate terrorism's a real deal, and, um, and the oil and gas and coal and, you know, that, that blue-collar, my daddy was a rural electric lineman, as you know, that blue-collar world would never think to do something like that, or if they thought about it, they'd know better because they have a, an ethical responsibility, even if, it's, even if it's on their way to losing their jobs. Um, they're going to produce the product that they, they know how to produce. Without a doubt. And like I said, a lot of it is just to try to get a national conversation going in places where they just don't seem to have the conversation, like The View and, and, and play, you know, Sports Center and places where they just demonize oil and gas on a regular basis, and they don't even think about the disconnect of the, you know, the farmer to the grocery store and the oil and gas worker to the light switch. And so... That, that, that's where we're at, Senator Kramer. People are, uh, there's no bad idea on the table right now, just whether we should move forward on them or not. And so <laughs> that's kind of, it seems exactly. like the new normal, but. Um, it does. Anyway. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, no, I just, you know, you're exactly, you're absolutely right. You're 100% right. There is a disconnect. Somehow we need to reconnect um, those dots for people in an illustrative way that makes sense and, um, and we certainly ought to be doing it in our schools. I mean, one thing I, I really give a lot of credit to the Lignite Energy Council, that years ago, decades ago, they started a program for, for school teachers, you know, giving tours, providing a curriculum, helping them better understand so they can help their students better understand the value of, of Lignite coal, not just to the production of electricity and the comfort of living and life, and not even just the jobs that it creates, but also... Um, the incredible work they do to, um, you know, return the return the, the land back to or better than it was uh, previous to mining. That reclamation process that's been so that's so great in North Dakota, and they're so proud of it, and rightfully so. Well, I sure appreciate your time today and the accessibility and you coming on. And it's a uh, it's it's just fantastic that uh, you still have enough passion and enough, uh, you know, gumption to get out there and still spread the good word and, and fight the good fight. So we appreciate it, Senator Kramer. It's always my pleasure. And I will spread the good word. I, nowadays you have to avoid words like fight the good fight because the next thing you know, they're going to take you up uh, for inciting a riot. 
<laughs> that's I. That's why I was a little hesitant talking about with some of those some of those you know high high highball conversations at seven thirty at night. You know, but uh, well, I appreciate. It. We'll talk down the road, okay, Senator. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Jason. Keep up the good work.